This is The Week Ahead, brought to you by Advisorpedia and powered by Tematica Research. I'm Chris Versace, Tematica Research's Chief Investment Officer, and joining me once again to break down the latest happenings, the news you need to know in the week ahead is Tematica's Chief Macro Strategist, Lenore Hawkins. Now, Lenore, before we dig into this, I got to ask, how surprised were you this week by the market's reaction to the highly anticipated consumer price index report that it totally ignored? Yeah, it was basically a big. But it was a week full yeah. of that because because even Apple had their big worldwide developer conference. And I, I, I distinctly remember watching it and being like, well, that's nice. That's interesting. But again, it wasn't a week in which we were bowled over by much. Nope. No, it really wasn't. The, um, I think the theme for the week can be fade the cover story. Um, as of last Friday's Wall Street Journal, the cover was inflation at a 13-year high. So big drama about that. And we're going to get into today why, again, we are still in camp transitory. All right. Well, get us going. All right. Well, so overall, markets totally unconcerned by the slightly hotter than expected inflation numbers, which I think we could all kind of see that coming. Um, but what was interesting is last Thursday, after those CPI data numbers came in, the S&P 500 actually rose half a point and closed at a new all-time high. NASDAQ composite rose almost 1%. NASDAQ 100 gained more than 1%. And in a testament to the 20, what we're officially calling the 2021 word of the year, transitory, in the hours after that CPA data came out, the 10-year treasury yield actually fell five basis points. Now, now that to me is the most telling point right there. Because if we flash forward or flashback, sorry, um, you know, a few months, people were all concerned with the treasury hitting 150, 160, right? And now I believe as we're recording this, it's hovering around 143. Yeah, um, a month ago on the cover of Barron's Magazine, uh, it was said the I word, right, inflation. Um, back then the yield on the 10 year was at 1.64 and consensus was saying we were on our way to like two, some were even arguing two and a half. Today we're now less than 1.5. And if you look at where kind of support levels are, technical analysis, the next stop is going to be down to about the 200-day trend line, and that's about 1.16. So despite all this talk about inflation, 10-year break-even yields are actually today at six-month close. Nominal 10-year yields have barely moved in the past few months. And something that no one's talking about is that China's inflation data came in actually below expectations, that up 1.3% year-over-year in May versus expectations for 1.6. Same thing went for Norway, which is a very fuel intensive economy, right? Uh, that came in at 1.5% for core. Now that's the lowest since July of 2018 versus expectations for 2%. So across the board, eh, I feel like that's really kind of how we can summarize this. Eh. Right. It, it's fascinating to me how, how though the, the perception is like changed or accepted it. So, so quickly, because you were right, just a week ago, there were, there were chicken little, the sky is going to fall. And now all of a sudden, it's just like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, we're not so worried, right? We actually had over the past five days, um, ending with Thursday's close from last week, uh, the strongest performer, had a look at it, the major players, 
the long-term ETF, the 20-plus year ETF, uh, ticker TLT, rose 3.3%. Now compare that to the NASDAQ, um, with uh, NASDAQ 100 was up 3.2%. So the NASDAQ 100 was less than TLT. NASDAQ composite was up 3%. That's crazy. Small cap Russell 2000 up 1.8, so like almost half. S&P 500 up 1.1, so a third of the performance of TLT. The Dow is actually down 0.3, while the VIX has fallen about 10%, and Bitcoin's dropped about 4%. So the big winner was long-term treasuries. That's that's uh, that's simply unbelievable. Um, as, as we look to kind of put that into context, let's let's break down the economic data uh, above and yeah. beyond the the all important, much focused yet disappointing, not really meaning much CPI report. What what else were you watching last week? So this is all kind of tied in to this this inflation story, right? Part of the inflation fear is this you know, money printing. When we've been saying this for, I've been one of them that's saying like all of this money that the Fed's been throwing into the economy, oh, it's going to lead to inflation. Well, we're not really seeing that because we've talked about this before, uh, the, the velocity of money. And what that just means is like, it's really tough to get inflation when if the Fed dumps cash into the system and that, that cash ends up going into people's mattresses, that is not really in the system, right? What we saw last week is that consumer credit in the U.S. rose by $18.6 billion in April that's after a downwardly revised 18.6 billion gain in March, but that's way below the expectations for 22 billion increase. And revolving credit fell by 2 billion, now that's credit cards, and non-revolving rose by 20.7 billion. Those are pretty much mortgages. Now, now, what do you make of that, where consumer credit was less than expected, but when we look back on the retail sales report and we, we digest the comments that we're getting out of the earnings season, where you know, retail facing companies are putting up, you know, double digit numbers, not year over year to 2020, but compared to 2019 as, as this, you know, what we can only describe as unbelievable pent up demand following being locked away uh, for yep. so long is, is happening. What, how does the math stack up? Two things, stimulus checks and people back to using their homes as an ATM, right? We had the biggest um, expansion in home-based credit, so borrowing against your home, occurred in the first quarter that we've seen since 2007, right? Remember back then, that was that mm -hmm. was when we started off this whole home as the ATM. Right. So those two things really jacked up people's ability to spend. Plus, like you said, that whole pent-up, ah, I gotta get out and buy some things. Hey, we were talking about it during the week, makeup sales, killing it. Yeah, well, Pretty soon, you're gonna be able to actually start seeing people's lips again. So that's pretty exciting. <laughs> so if we're looking at those homes, <laughs> mortgage applications. <laughs> sorry, folks. I, sorry, 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 folks. I, I, I got to deal with this every day. Believe me. Open mouth, insert foot. I, I don't know what it is. You can't. I cannot understand. It's like it's like if I can't see your lips, I somehow go deaf. But what is this? We hit it with a mask, and people say something to you, and you're going, eh. Eh, and I've, I've turned into some sort of hearing impaired person. So I'm really looking forward to the whole lip thing. So right, stop going, eh. Let's move along and talk to me about mortgage applications. Okay, mortgage, uh, we mentioned this last week, but mortgage applications, again, declined uh, for the week ending June 4th. Now this was the third consecutive weekly decline. Refinancing's down 5.1%. So like we just said, Q1 saw a lot of taking cash out. 
the most we've seen since 2007. It's not something that's going to be able to continue to happen. Um, the index for mortgage applications is at the lowest level since February of 2020. So do, do, that was not a great time for do you think that with the ten, Do you think that with the tenure retreating, like we were talking about, that this might spur some incremental activity? May, maybe, we're, maybe we've bottomed out in the short term on this refinancing. I think, I think what we're, I think what we're seeing in housing, it's very difficult to say something profound about the economy overall from housing, because what we're dealing with is such small numbers, right? The supply of housing available for sale has been really low. What we are seeing is the amount of time that homes are being on the market continues to increase, right? right. So it used to be you put your home up and boom, it's gone. And now that's starting to expand. Right. I was just, I, I was getting at with the fall in the 10 year, do you think we might see more people start to refinance and continue to use your Oh, sorry. The 10 year. I, I mean, that, that, that certainly doesn't hurt. Um, but if you've already pulled out money out of your home, just because the 10 years come down a bit, is it going to? Oh, I, no, I know, I know, I know. But I, mean, I, I, I remember back in 2007, 2008, you would talk to people who refinanced their home, not one time, not two times, but three times. So I, but I, that was I'm based just... on those, that was based on the skyrocketing house prices, right? Because if your home price is going up like 20% a year, then boom, suddenly you've got more equity in it. Right, right. Which is something we've seen, you know, yeah. surge in housing prices. So you need the two year. of them. Right. right, you need both falling interest rates and you need skyrocketing home prices. But I think we've also got where the lenders are a little bit wiser mm, that true. we don't want to go down. We, you know, we've been down that road and it didn't end very well for anyone. No, no. Okay, let's move on. So one of the things that um, is kind of interesting is looking at wholesale inventories. Um, they came last week, rose in line with the expectations, a little under 1% month over month, over month over month. Um, on a year-over-year -year basis, up about 5.2%. But what's really interesting is that if we look at the average monthly level from Q4 of 2019 versus this past month and exclude energy, wholesaler sales are up 2.1%, which means if we just take, because energy has been so volatile, right? Take energy out of the equation. We're seeing an expansion at the wholesale level. Now, that's a good sign for the economy. What's also interesting is that inventory levels relative to sales are also super low by historical standards. So that means, you know, given the level of sales that wholesalers are seeing, you would expect to have to see them have more inventory. Um, in fact, X Energy, they're at the lowest level since December of 2013. Durable goods inventory to sales ratios at the lowest level since February of 2012 and is in the 11th percentile of all time going back to 1992. So what do you think that's going on there is, problems with the supply chain continue. Oh, trust me, I, think, I know I know all about that. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Chris, so for, for our listeners, Chris is and I, oddly enough, both of us have had are in the market to get new dishwashers. Oh, I'm not in the I'm not in the I'm not in the market. Well you now I, got it. I got one. I got one. But I couldn't get the model I wanted. You had to settle. Yeah, yeah. So I was trading from a, an old Viking dishwasher that arguably never worked well to uh, what I wanted to get was a Bosch 800 series. And I had to settle for a 500 series, which is modestly lower. I, I, I can't really complain. But when they were installing it, uh, I was talking with the um, installer and he said that that 800 series sold out four to six months across the country. Bosch cannot make them. The reason being 
chips and connectors that go to the motherboard, they can't get them. And yep, you know, here we go. And this, this, this ties with some of the stuff that we've been hearing, not, not just across the auto industry, but also this past week, Flextronics came out and said that they don't see this shortage abating until 2022. Supply chain issues are going to continue to be a problem. The other yeah. thing that seems to continue to be a problem is finding the right person for the job. So last week we got the JOLT report, which is on job openings in the US. And one more time, job openings hit a new record high of, I mean, this number is just truly mind boggling to me, about 9.3 billion. That's up almost a million from the month before, totally shattering expectations for about 8.3 million. So it was almost a million more than was expected. Um, now, unsurprisingly, the areas with the biggest increase in openings were accommodations and food services. Not a shocker, right? Hotels are getting back into business. Restaurants are starting to open up. Um, interesting that educational services lost 23,000 jobs. Um, it, what was also real interesting is that the number of hires only rose by 69,000 to 6 million. And what we're hearing across the board is large and small businesses continue to complain about the difficulty in finding workers, despite the, the broader unemployment level, the U6, which takes into account those who are marginally attached to the workforce, that's at 10.2%. Um, when you look at the, the broader labor pool, you look at who's actually really uh, looking available to, to bring in, you're at 0.94 jobs for every one person looking for a job. And yet we still have this mismatch. So I think that that's one of our kind of our themes going forward is really this need to retool a good portion of the workforce. I, I agree with that. But I, I, I also think it's interesting that the data that you just talked about, just, I mean, it is the economic equivalent of the commentary that we heard throughout the entire earnings season. Supply chain issues, yep. can't find yep. people. And, and those two, as we know, can't turn on a dime, which means that we're going to continue to right. hear more and more about that, at least through the summer, if not the rest of the year. And the, the, when we're talking about that labor pool and the challenges there, the really and, and, and what's going on with the economy, the big picture is the change in productivity. So to understand what productivity really what it's all about, in a recession, employers normally slow um, to cut jobs as sales slump. So they, they're slow to cut them, right? You don't you're not really sure how bad it's going to get. You're not, most are not super aggressive about getting rid of employees. So that means that you're producing less with almost the same number of employees. That means productivity is going down, right? Because the demand for your stuff is falling faster than you're getting rid of employees. And when the recession's over and sales recover, employers, again, because they're a little bit nervous, right? We just went through a recession. They're slower to add jobs. That means that productivity rebounds, demand's going up faster, and you're not hiring employees as quickly as the demand goes up. So you just normally see this fluctuation. But the pandemic totally broke what has been something we've, we've basically always seen. Business output per hour grew in three of the past four months. So we didn't see that cycle of crashing demand, crashing productivity. And actually in the January to March quarter of this year, it was productivity was up 4.1% from the year prior. That's the fastest pace we've seen in a decade. Now, granted, some of this is more of a technical thing than actual productivity gains because the jobs that were cut were more in like lower productivity. But if you're looking at like white collar, just the way this is just the way it's measured um, by the government, 
the productivity of like barista versus the productivity of say like a white collar tech. Those the white collar tech. I don't know. There's a, there's a lot of baristas that I can't do without. That's a bad example. (laughs) I'm, I'm totally with you. I'm just saying that's kind of how it's how it's measured by the government. Uh, for me personally, I'll take the barista. <laughs> um, but what happened was that, it, and so when you saw those like lower productivity getting cut, right, because hospitality, those kinds of things, or restaurants, they had to cut labor, whereas the, a lot of the white collar jobs didn't really get cut. So you cut the ones that are given lower productivity measures. So that artificially boosted the appearance of productivity, but Way beyond that, what we saw is companies were pushed by the pandemic to actually change their business models and intensify their use of technology to squeeze more and more sales out of the same workforce, often that workforce having to remain at the socially distanced. Um, Industries accounting for a third of the job losses since the start of the pandemic have actually increased output, which includes retail, information, finance, construction, professional and business services. What happened was that companies learned they can actually do more with less and that a lot of those overhead costs from before are being seriously questioned. Companies invested in technology that increased productivity per employee and then are looking at the things that they before thought, no, I really need to spend on it and maybe I really don't. And that's also really good long-term for the economy. Do we really need those fancy offices? Maybe we don't need that big, right? We're shifting more and more. We just heard this morning um, from Amazon saying that they're officially going to allow employees to work um, so they're more office based, not the frontline, but office based employees to work from home two days a week and then up to four weeks a year um, remotely as long as they're within the U.S. Well, I mean, we're hearing that from Apple, too, and, some, and a growing number of listed yep. companies. But but to your point about technology, I mean, I, I think the jury is still waiting to see to what degree business travel actually comes back. And we know that right. has a tremendous ripple effect not just on, you know, airlines and trains and rental cars, but, you know, hotels, restaurants, and, and to some extent, uh, other events, let's just call it, whether they're, you know, in Vegas or, um, you know, sporting events and tickets and things like that. Yeah. So when you, when we, we look across part of what's going on with how businesses are changing their mindset, um, banks in the U.S. are now struggling in similar ways that the banks in the European Union have been struggling with for quite some time. Bank deposits continued to surge this year. Between late March and May 26, they rose um, over 400 billion to 17.09 trillion, um, according to the latest data from Federal Reserve. That's slower than the pace last spring, but it's still nearly four times what we've typically seen over the past 20 years. Um, U.S. companies are holding on to billions in cash and banks, frankly, at this point, they just don't know what to do with it. Because when the coronavirus pandemic hit last year, corporate execs rushed to raise money, right? We saw, we saw the corporate, the bonds just coming out at a record pace. But now they're holding on to that cash and companies are reluctant to go and borrow. So the cash is just sitting on banks. And banks aren't able to to lend that out and to generate cash flow. We're seeing CFOs and treasurers who are still very wary of the impact of the pandemic. And and we're not really out of the woods yet. Whereas in the U.S., maybe we kind of feel like we are. A lot of the world isn't. This story is not over yet. So these CFOs and treasurers really aren't mm, exactly ready for those big expenditures, even if they don't earn a whole lot on their deposits. So while bank deposits are up, borrowing is down with total loan 
uh, at about 61% of all deposits as of May 26. Now that's down from 75% in February of 2020. So that means that the industry, the banking industry's net interest margin, which is a key measure of lending profitability, fell to an actual record low in the first quarter. So it's a tough time to be in the, in the lending business. And while we're hearing whispers of tapering around the Fed, last week the ECB said they're kind of moving in the opposite direction. In their most recent policy meeting, they pledged to keep rates at record lows indefinitely, and also that they intend to buy bonds at a significantly faster pace. Now, bottom line on that is that it's positive for the US dollar and weaker for the Euro. That relationship, as far as the US dollar is concerned, may be borrowing out. We've sort of seen where the, the DXY US dollar index looks like it's really formed a bottom and is going to be strengthening from here. So kind of looking at the economy overall, final thought, um, we're seeing global food price inflation really coming out of this pandemic. And this has been exacerbated by droughts in Brazil and in the US and by stockpiling in China. And in fact, the UN's key food price increased now for 12 consecutive months with a 4.8% surge in May that pushed it to the highest level since September of 2011. And if you remember back to September of 2011, that was a period that was fraught by food-inspired riots globally. And that was partially responsible for the Arab Spring Revolution. Now, while we still file all of this inflation talk into the transitory file, this is a significant destabilizing factor in the emerging markets in the near term. And if you add this to the already high levels of tension over the pandemic and vaccine rollout, this could also intensify social tensions in the US as well as the rest of the world. So we're keeping an eye on, on this in light of the Goldilocks expectations priced into the markets um, when we look at that global recovery story. So let, let me ask you a question that I, I'm sure people just digested what you said this last piece, particularly on food prices. And why is it that when we look at something, food, that takes 20 to 25% of the average paycheck, why is that not included in the core inflation rate? Silly, yeah, right? Yeah, Silly. Yeah. Yeah, it's food, food, food and energy. Well, okay, so this, now there are the argument, to be fair, the argument is that those things can be highly volatile, right? Like, it, and this is, I think we talked about this last week, that if you get this, a crazy freeze that hits Florida and California and wipes out oranges, price of orange juice, good skyrocket, that really inflation? No. And you have it with food, right? You have a really tough farm year and corn crops or wheat crops don't do really well and they skyrocket. Coffee, we see things, we see coffee being prices going up. Is it really right to call that inflation when you're talking commodity products that can be subject to supply shocks? And is that, is that really part of inflation? Same thing with energy. You can get these supply shocks that, that can spike it. So from the Fed's perspective, when you're, you're looking at, well, that's not really inflation, but from a household, oh right, my exactly. God, my bills exactly. are going up a month. Right. <laughs> that right. I mean, that's, feels like inflation. <laughs> that's, yeah, that, that's the part that resonates with people. You know, when, when you go to the store and you come back with a bag that's even smaller than it was last time, but the overall receipt is significantly higher, you're like, what is going on here? And I, I, I think it's just, perhaps you're right that we, we, as people who look at these things, need to come up with a new term or terminology for what this actually is, uh, because people feel yeah, it. I, I hate the word inflation, because inflation, we use it for everything. And it's not like, when the Fed's looking at it and talking inflation, 
what they're talking about is changing monetary policy. And right. you really don't want the Fed considering changing monetary policy. Based on tightening or loosening. Based, yeah, based on a good year or a bad year for corn, right? Like that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, or I, if I, OPEC gets itself all wound up again. I mean, you just, you don't, you don't want the Fed making those decisions. But when it comes to us, what we're experiencing, like, damn, prices are up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, like, like I said, I, I think we need to develop some, a, a new lexicon for what this is. So yeah. that was last week. I know that comparatively, so yeah. we have a much busier week ahead in terms of economic data. What are you watching? So May retail sales come out on Tuesday. And like we just said, we saw homeowners pulling out a bunch of equity in Q1. You were still getting the benefits from uh, the stimulus package. Let's see what happens in May. Could still be a little bit elevated, but there was an awful lot of cash flow support earlier this year. Let's see what happens. Um, we'll also on Tuesday get the May producer price index. Expect that one to be hot. Still going to keep an eye on it. Industrial production and capacity utilization. Still keep an eye on that. Because remember, we keep talking about, eh, tough to get too worked up about inflation when you have slack in the system. So that capacity utilization, the key one to watch. Um, they, we'll also get the June Empire State Manufacturing Index. How hot is manufacturing still recovering? Because that's a, you know, a bit of a barometer for the economy. And as we were talking about those home prices, June's NAHB Housing Market Index comes out on Tuesday. Any signs of cooling? Like we have been seeing where time on market has been stretching out a little bit. And we'll also get business inventories on Tuesday. Wednesday, the weekly MBA mortgage application index. Is that going to be falling again? Will it be a fourth week of decline or fifth week of decline? Uh, May housing starts and building permits, right? That's that's what's going on. Are we seeing this still getting hot? Import export prices, more inflation data. And big thing on Wednesday will be the FOMC rate decision. So last week we heard from the ECB saying we're staying loose as long as we as long <laughs> as we can see. And in fact, we're probably going to step this up with the stimulus. Um, so we'll be hearing from the Fed. We've been hearing paper talk. What are they thinking? And so that will be one to dissect. And on Thursday, the usual weekly continuing and, and um, initial jobless claims, it's been falling, 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 falling if that's still going and the Philly Fed index on Thursday as well for June. Okay. So that, that's a lot of stuff next week. Unlike you, I will probably have my foot up with an umbrella drink when it comes to corporate earnings over the coming week. But first, let, let, let's just touch on a couple ones from this past week. You know, we already mentioned Apple and their worldwide developer conference kind of being a met event. I, I will say though, that uh, there was a, a continued focus by the company on privacy. Uh, and I think that's going to be a, a differentiating weapon for them, um, increasingly across their array of products. We also said Flextronics, which is the third largest contract manufacturer, uh, said the chip shortage is going to be with us until mid to late 2022. Uh, a couple Ooh. other just, yeah, it's going to be crazy. A couple other key things, Sherwin-Williams Paint and Coatings Company boosted their guidance for the current quarter, continued strength in North America. That's that good old repair remodel. Uh, business. Chipotle hiking prices. Why? Combination of um, rising worker wages. We've heard all about that. And, and food inflation. Well, and food and, and, and food input cost inflation. Yeah, for them. Yeah. But you're right. This is going to add to food inflation. But again, we knew this was going to have to happen. You can't bump your, your uh, hourly wage to 15 bucks yeah. without trying to pass some of this along. Um, and these last two to me are... are Wait, which is the, also, but that's also part of what we've seen with productivity, right? Because 
the way these minimum wage boosts, some companies have responded is by implementing some automation features. Right. And I think we're going to see more of more of that. I mean, particularly at Chipotle as they roll out these Chipotle lanes. That's that to me is going to be quite interesting to watch. The, the, these next two, I, I want to mention together. So Starbucks grinding their way back to pre-pandemic business. <laughs> They're uh, running short on cups, coffee, syrups, and other essentials. And then Chewy, uh, the online um, ordering portal for you know pet supplies that my, my pups tend to get their monthly allotment from. Uh, they put up great numbers for their April quarter, but this was the point that really stuck out to me. Uh, the company shared that elevated out-of-stock levels were a persistent headwind throughout the quarter and reduced their first quarter sales by about 40 million. It's an industry-wide headwind that are supply chain-driven, and the company expects this to continue in the second half of the year, even as incremental production capacity comes online. So you you, you take the two of those, and it, it seems to me that we are, as this economic engine starts to you know go from an idle to a hum to a roar that we are going to continue to hear more and more about these supply chains. I, I would say it's almost exactly the opposite of what we saw last year, Lindor, when yep. right right at the height of the pandemic, what couldn't you get? Toilet paper, paper towels, cleaning supplies, yep. whatever. And that took months for capacity to match demand. I think we're seeing the same thing. We've never seen such a global idling so synchronized yeah. that we it's going to take time to recover. And I... I I'm coming at this a little differently than you, but I do think it means that your comments about transitory inflation are likely to be spot on and proven correct when we look back on this in hindsight. Well, when you when you look at the kind of the big picture of it, we've never experienced, like you said, such a massive global shutdown of no, production, never. just an incredible scale. And I think to to say that now that we're getting back to business to say that demand is going to sustainably be significantly higher than, than it was before. That's and that ridiculous. supply won't be able to return to where it was or keep up with demand. Yeah. I think those are both, those are, this is just a disingenuous argument. I, this, I, I don't see I agree. a good reason for that. Especially when you see all the, the investment that's been made in productive capacity with last year, one of the one areas of the economy that really grew was this shift towards automation, improving productivity. Mm -hmm. So wait a minute, we've improved productivity and you're telling me that we're not going to be able to make as much as enough stuff to keep up I, with demand. No, 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 this is transitory. I, 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 think, this, I, I think we were to compare contrast. You know, th this is a total, you know, what we saw last year on those supplies that I mentioned was a total pull forward because of fears over scarcity. Yep. And now yep. what we're seeing is a tremendous amount of pent up demand spending, whether it's for makeup, clothes, what have you. Um, and at some point, you know, the, the pendulum will swing and we'll be back to a normalized level of demand. The, the question well, and the when, supply chains, yeah, the supply chains will get sorted out too, right? You, you yep. got to bring, you can't have shut down a factory, sent everybody home, you know, lock the door and Let's, then just turn it all back on and have everything yeah. working like no, just, it, mm, it's all good it's all good no, no it's gonna it, take it, a bit people and and those supply chains as far as the transport right because that's really complex network so we've talked about this many times that you know boats the ships and the, mm -hmm. the trucks and trains they're in the wrong place with the wrong containers full or empty and it's gonna take a while to get that sorted 
Well, especially since you may not have all the dock workers you once had because they're sitting home yep. collecting extra unemployment benefits. The, the, yep. the windup is that this is going to take some time to settle out. And I, I think you and I are more inclined to be patient before calling anything um, extreme. But I also yep. think we recognize that the demand factor that we're seeing today, to your point, you can't... Um, What's the matter? It's not linear. It's not going to keep growing. Well, like it's this. it's not linear. You you can't extrapolate this as the new demand pattern, right? Totally agree. Yeah. Okay. All point. right. All right. Let's. Uh, was there any other company news that caught your eye last week? Yeah. So uh, a little warning flare. Um, Royal Caribbean announced mm. that two passengers aboard their Millennium cruise ship tested positive for COVID nineteen. Um, they're asymptomatic, which makes me wonder why did they get tested? Cat? What? Are they testing? Testing they must all the be time? Testing everybody. They can yeah, be testing they must be testing everybody. They've isolated the two of them and are now um, going to to trace, like do contact tracing on it. But this brings up sort of a, an interesting, you know, one, opening up the global economy, opening up travel, you know, oh damn. So this wasn't a good sign for that. There's also this odd tension right now that we've got between governors in some states and the cruise industry, governors that are saying, we don't, we're not going to allow businesses to test or to force vaccinations. So the governors are saying, no, you can't do that. And the cruise in ship industry is saying, uh, we're, we ought to do something. This is a little, um, we can't, we can't trap people on a boat and uh, say, eh, we have no idea what the COVID status is. Those governors, um, I'm just curious, have you done an analysis of their political leaning? Well, yeah, but we, we don't get into that. We don't, we don't, it's just that's it's it's it, it has ramifications for those states because yeah. if these cruise in, if these cruise companies just say, you know what, like we can't take that risk. I, I understand that you for your state don't want us to do force vaccine, you know, say that you have to be vaccinated or you have to be tested to to come onto our ship. I understand that you as a state don't want to do that, but well, ships can move. And that could hurt the tourism industry if they move their base, right? So it's one to keep an eye on. Also, American Airlines announced that they're investing $25 million in electric flying taxi startup, Vertical Aerospace. So that is just more, more proof on our cleaner living investment theme where we're seeing you know, this, this shift towards cleaner transportation. Yep. You know, it's, and, it's I, I have to wonder, though, like when, when is that going to happen? And how big of a battery do you need to have to fly an airplane across the country? That's got to be a big freaking matter because you're not recharging in the air. Nope. Well, All right, you, sorry, you were about to say. Um, your, your, your favorite Dave and Busters. They also announced last week uh, they had a surprise profit for Q1 mm -hmm. of uh, 40 cents a share versus expected loss. Are you surprised? Are you surprised about that? So. I'm not surprised about that. People want to get the, pardon my language, get the F out and go do something. Yeah, I am. Yeah, they really do. So, next yeah, thing, next thing you know, I, I'm, I'm waiting for the axe throwing companies to start going public. That's what I'm waiting for. <laughs> so um, what's coming up next week on earnings? So as I mentioned before, it's, it's a pretty light week. Uh, Tuesday, we got Oracle. Uh, you know, we really want to see what they have to say about enterprise spending, uh, particularly regarding cloud. Remember when they reported their last quarter in March, they were having constraint issues just because demand was simply unprecedented. Has that slowed down at all? Have they been able to meet demand? That's, those are some things we'll be looking at, as well as the closing of the Slack acquisition. Uh, Wednesday the 16th brings Lenar. That's a home builder. So there's a whole slew of questions we want to you know, pay attention to. How strong is housing demand? What price points are selling? Are they seeing any um, consumers those walking lumber away? Lumber prices are 
coming down finally. <laughs> well, right. But that's going to take time to work through the system, right? Yep. So, so, you know, what's the margin outlook for the back half of the year yeah. between if prices stay high and we start to see some input cost relief there. Uh, Thursday is really the busiest day with all of three companies to pay attention to. Uh, we got Kroger and, you know, the trends during the quarter that they'll report as well as its guidance are going to tell us to what degree are people still really wanting to eat at home versus, hey, I need to get out of here a la Dave and Buster's and go experience, you know, some restaurant dining or, or something else. Um, but the other thing that I think you and I will be focused in on, unlike a lot of other folks, will be what is going on in their private label business? Is it continuing to pivot in line with our cleaner living investment theme? Mm -hmm. um, Adobe, look, coming out of the pandemic, we know companies have adopted a digital first mindset. So what productivity tools have been killing it? What productivity tools are they bringing out? Um, you know, one of the ones that I want to pay particularly close attention to after having to deal with lawyers and notaries over this last week are electronic signatures. I hope to God that we can get that, get that rolling. And then lastly is one that, you know, I'll, I'll say it out of the gate. It's not going to be for everybody. Um, it's a firearm company, Smith and Wesson's. We know firearms are kind of a topical issue, uh, both uh, for individuals as well as for investors. But here's the reality. Um, the FBI NICS firearm background checks are up 17% year over year for the three months ending in May. The company is likely going to have a good print, uh, but what do they see going forward and what are they talking about in terms of manufacturing, supply chain, and input costs? Because at the end of the day, Smith & Wesson, they're a metal vendor. That's all they are. And uh, I think kind of a, a final thing that we'll be keeping an eye on is uh, the G7 meeting results, which kicks off, kicked off on Friday in the UK. Um, there's kicking off in light of tensions between little, little tensions again between the US and China and the US announcement that we're buying, was it 500 million doses of Pfizer right. to donate? It really, I gotta just say, it's, it is just, it's nice to see the US doing something so great on something I, so awful I agree. for the whole I world. Agree. That's, I agree. It's just nice to see that. The, the only other thing I would and, throw onto that G7 is, you know, any progress on the minimum global tax rate. Yeah. Oy. <laughs> I think that's going to be I, a I, Ireland that, that's right be... next door. Ireland right next door is going, don't right. do it. Don't do it. Don't no, do it. No, no, no. <laughs> Please I know, don't do it. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> but I, I think you were about to say something very important. And that is the week ahead. 